0: So Jack shares his birthday with David Attenborough, Sid James from the Carry On movies, uh, Jao Avalanche, Tom of Finland, (laughs) and Gary Glitter. I think it's harder not to share a birthday with a celebrity British paedophile because there's so many of them. So I think, yeah, we won't read too much into that. Machine uh, Jack Charlton. I believe the game is a thinking game. Sit down and take it easy. Maybe a bit volatile. Welcome back to back to Jack, where we're covering the glorious period that was the Jack Charlton era, game by game by game, and this time we're going to be covering the triangular tournament that took place in Iceland in 1986, featuring the Republic of Ireland, Czechoslovakia and the host nation, Iceland. So, fellas, we've had a couple of friendlies to limber up. How do you feel about plunging into competitive actions? Any strains or niggles? Any complaints about the training facilities?
1: A whole tournament, but don't get too excited. It's 1986, but we're not off to Mexico, somewhere slightly colder. I suppose it's uh, the,
2: the first um, opportunity to really see how, uh, if, not, if not wholly competitive, but uh, certainly games with a bit more at stake uh, than, than the usual Wednesday or Thursday afternoon friendlies. And I suppose an opportunity for uh, Jack maybe to have a bit more of a, a rounded look at his squad with as many players as he, can, as he can fit into one pitch.
0: And we're going to see plenty of them um, over the next two games which take place just two days apart in Reykjavik. Now, this is obviously May 1986 that we're plunging into. There were two momentous events in Iceland in 1986. Um, In December, Presidents Reagan and Gorbachev met to discuss nuclear disarmament. And in May, Ireland, Iceland and Czechoslovakia meet to contest the Reykjavik 200 tournament. And this episode, of course, is about the latter. So why were Ireland actually playing in this tournament? Well, the tournament was being held to commemorate the 200th anniversary of the foundation of Reykjavik as a charter city which happened in 1786 Uh, and that was an example that was going to be followed by many many Irish cities in the 1980s. Uh, The 1980s were full of spurious celebrations of various anniversaries I guess as a way of generating some kind of buzz at a very bleak time in Irish history so we had Galway 500 in 1984.
1: Well, I'm quite certain that uh,
2: any celebration and celebration is a very good thing in life because if we don't celebrate the happy and the good things of life, we lose
0: the zest for life itself. Uh, but in, in my view, uh, I see it's value that it's going to make us look more at our roots, and uh, that is at the people, at the events, at the times that shaped us, and a community, it's important the community, understands and knows its roots, otherwise it's like a man without a memory, and I would like to be a man without a memory. We had Cork 800, we had Dublin's alleged millennium in 1988, uh, and then, as usual, mayo ruined everything by, by taking it too far. There was mayo 5000 in 1993, <laughs> which I think they dated from the age of some bones that they found in a bog. But I don't know if you remember that, genre.
1: I didn't know that that was a, a thing, Now, to be honest, but um not surprised at us trying to kind of up the prestige levels. Mm. I think 5000 year old mayo may be, not, might not be the
2: image anybody wants to hear.
0: Although if it was in a bog, it would probably still be edible. So this tournament was dubbed the David Kupa after the, the mayor of Reykjavik, David Odson, subsequently prime minister of Iceland. He was kind of like an, an Icelandic Alan Dukes. He was a, a pretty extreme free market libertarian and uh, hugely controversial. And his policies ultimately resulted in Iceland's massive financial crash in 2009. But uh, we're not going to dwell on that because we're back in the in the carefree and Fancy Free Days of 1986. And we might just very quickly, before we plunge into the the cultural and sporting context of the time, we might just talk around the initial Irish squad.
1: Yeah, it was heralded because it's it's the... Jack is getting serious kind of before the European qualifiers just that autumn, right, in the, the Belgium game. He
0: is placing a lot of emphasis on, on this trip because he says openly that, you know, something Jock Steen once told him about coming into any club or national team setup is you don't really get to know players until you go away with them so that's why he's very keen to have this opportunity um, and the initial squad that he names and we might just uh, talk around this for a while because it's an interesting one uh, both in terms of who's there and who isn't there uh, so the goalkeepers are Payton and Bonner the defenders are Langen, Anderson, Beglin, Hutton, McCarthy, Lawrenson and Moran um, and then in midfield or the midfielders in the squad are McGrath, Brady, Whelan, Houghton, Daly, Murphy of Chelsea, Galvin and Liam O'Brien. And the strikers are Aldridge, Stapleton and Robinson. So Sheedy is left out after pulling out of the previous two squads with injury. There's a little bit of a hint that that may be holding a little bit of a grudge against either Sheedy or his club. Sheedy does call Jack to tell him he's actually available, but Jack says he's picked a squad and that's that. So John Burns not there. Uh, David O'Leary is not in the original squad. Barry Murphy of Bohemians is left out, and Tony Grealish is also left out. But that is by no means the end of the story, is it?
2: I think apart from apart from the obvious uh, Dave O'Leary omission, um, what really sticks out is it looks very very close to to the strongest squad that he has available. To you know, just looking at the teams, uh, two players from Liverpool, three players from Man United. It's it's a uh, kind of top end of the, of the first division and obviously Liam Brady uh, from Inter Milan as well so it really looks like he's, he's, he's getting the best opportunity he's going to have for, for quite a while to really have a look at these players.
1: And Liam O'Brien is back in after his outing the last day as well so is there a couple of League of Ireland players in the squad? Among the initial squad
2: um, Barry Murphy has dropped out so Liam O'Brien is the only League of Ireland member uh, initially named.
0: Jerry Murphy is in, who's a bit of a phantom. Um, I'm not entirely sure he exists. It's like like some kind of found footage horror film where the past has changed when you go back to look at it because this was a player I'm not familiar with at all. He's been in pretty much all the squads. He's been heavily featured in the media coverage of the games. Um, He will never make an appearance for Charlton. But far more controversially, um, the three Liverpool players in the squad... They're going on what it becomes quite clear is just a squad holiday, an end-of-season jolly-up to Marbella. And uh, they they are not making themselves available for this tour.
2: And it's interesting uh, that we see Mick McCarthy is in the squad. Uh, he's in a similar situation, a uh, planned Man City squad holiday in America. Uh, he opts not to go, uh, takes up the call and... Uh, Perhaps that might be the start of his redemption.
1: Yeah, after not making the, the initial squad the last two games, but but starting both, it does seem to be a bit of a turnaround time for Mick. And then the two Oxford lads, Aldridge and Houghton, who have had two great games, have also decided not to go to the US.
0: Uh, yeah, the Man United players will also be scrambling to get back from uh, a tour of, of Asia focused around Hong Kong. So they're making a, a serious effort to get back. So these Liverpool players have really kind of Put a target on their backs by, by um refusing a call-up. Liam Brady, he is allegedly injured in a Coppa Italia game and pulls out. Uh, Jerry Murphy, as we said, pulls out. Um, Jack calls up a number of replacements. So Shamrock Rover's Pat Byrne is back in the squad. Um, Portsmouth captain Mick Kennedy. He's a, like, like, I guess, many an, an Irish person of the time uh, or of his generation. He's Salford-born, but his parents are from Kilmelea in, in County Clare. Uh, he's, as we said, a, a, a left-footed hard man with a, a long throw and pretty notorious with referees. So he does sound like a, a Jack Charlton player, a natural Jack Charlton player. One man who has located his passport and made alternative use of it uh, is David O'Leary, who, after being snubbed for the original squad, has ignored Jack's call-up uh, after the, after all these these players pulling out. He's, he's not making himself available, and he's off on a family holiday, and this does not seem to have gone down well with our hero. Sure,
1: he was left out, so would you not book a holiday? I mean, what else are you going to do? Hang around waiting for Jack to call you up? I suppose it's one of those tests of loyalty, and it...
2: Uh, uh after after
1: being offered a route
2: back into the squad and he and he's rejecting it, I think uh, that's not gonna it's not gonna play well. Uh, with Jack knowing everything that we know about him and uh, perhaps it might take a little bit of work to to get
1: back in the graces after that. He should have booked the holiday to Iceland and then, you know, best <laughs> of both worlds.
0: There is a another addition to the squad, um, Niall Quinn of Arsenal.
1: Also uncapped, yeah.
0: Also uncapped, a bemoleted teenage target man um comes into the squad. And Jack makes a very pointed remark about Niall Quinn's inclusion. He said, Niall wanted to come, so he's coming. David O'Leary had made alternative arrangements.
2: And this is a similar time, um, I think it's actually the same occasion, when Niall Quinn turned up to the airport to to meet the rest of the squad. Jack looks over to him and the first thing he says is, oh God, we haven't picked him, have we? Brilliant. Yeah.
0: And in fact, Niall Quinn said he was genuinely worried for a while that that he he'd actually been called up by the under twenty ones, and it was an error by his club, by Arsenal. <laughs> but it was of course just Jack pulling the piss as he is is wont to do. I would have thought that David O'Leary was was on slightly shaky ground with Jack anyway. He's not that real hard case of a of a centre half that Jack um, tends to prize. He, he's more of I guess a. A cultured ball player. So, is there an element here of Jack maybe looking for an excuse to to discard him at this? Stage? Yeah, well
1: Jack. Jack's made it clear that he that he wants Lawrence and and, and Moran. I think as his starting centre halves. Um, and that's that's after Moran kind of dropping out of favour with, or maybe never even making favour with with the one hand. So yeah, you would think that uh, if you're David O'Leary, you'd be chomping at the bit to get a chance like Mick McCarthy. But you know. Two different, very different types of players, as you said, Turlock, and one certainly more suited to Jack's philosophy.
2: I think it may just be a, not a test of loyalty, but certainly um, the fact that he's only, he's only been in the job a couple of months and a player comes along and offers him an opportunity to maybe maybe stamp his authority down and uh, create a bit of a precedent for for any other player that may wish to uh, to, to skip the odd friendly and, and go on a bit of a
1: jolly or whatever something else i noticed there was another kind of uh, lifestyle piece with Jack in the run up to this tournament lads and the george best feud continues uh, he got another little dig in in an article which is otherwise about his uh, pleasant family life at home the uh, the dead ducks at the end of his garden and you know his his love for fishing he still gets a dig in at george best saying that he was never up there with Greavesy or Franny Lee, players who you know brought dignity to the game. Um, however, Best was unprofessional and described as a tragedy in by Jack in this uh, otherwise you know puff piece about his his life.
2: It's quite interesting how quickly um, we've seen over the first three months or so of his reign that there's been a few of these sort of one on one pieces, maybe maybe to humanize him a bit and to. Uh, uh, i guess maybe let people get to know the outsider who's who's come into irish football but it, it's interesting just how formulaic they become so quickly it's almost like you could write them without even thinking about it it's the you know the little bit of the fish in life the the family man world cup winner and also i hate george best for some reason <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> no i i think that's really interesting that
0: like th- there is this we all know the, the the famous, possibly apocryphal, "Where did it all go wrong?" George story, but but there is this element of, um, I guess, working class respectability about about prose of this era, and that you know that that kind of almost anything goes on the pitch, but you know, being being respectable and and, and upright and conducting yourself properly um, is is something that a lot of them prize, and, and it, not doing that is what really puts you
2: puts you beyond the pale and he makes he makes a point of contrasting himself with the uh, with his brother bobby who was rightly regarded as one of the best players of his era if not if not all time and there was a contrast between his opinion of himself which was you know just somebody a lumber who worked hard and bobby who really made the best of his god-given talent and i think maybe even even ahead of that wales game in march i think Charlton maybe alludes to it a little bit in his characterisation of um, Paul McGrath he's he's too good a footballer to play at centre half and maybe there's a little bit of the the looking at the likes of uh, of his brother Bobby and seeing talent really realised and looking at George Best and seeing wasted talent
0: (coughs) I actually, I got a phone call the following day from Oliver Reed and Alex Higgins yeah
1: (laughs) He's trying out all this
0: material. No, he's,
2: they they both said to me, you looked all right to me. <laughs> this, is the, this is part of this man's new career as a, as a stand-up
0: act, as a stand-up comedian and, and after-dinner speaker. So the team fly out from Glasgow. Uh, they land in Iceland, where there's 22 hours of daylight at this time of year. There's no alcohol or there's no there's no beer there's plenty of non-alcoholic beer um, beer has been banned in Iceland since 1933 you can still get spirits so god knows what, what that's achieving but uh, <laughs> but that's what that's something of a nightmare scenario particularly for the Manchester United squad of this of this time I would have thought but anyway we'll leave them there in their in their hell of dry perpetual daylight. Um, Let's just take a quick breather to drink in some more of the atmosphere of kind of late spring early summer of 1986. So I guess the first thing we need to talk about is that there were four important finals that took place within the space of a few days uh, at the end of May. Um, We teased it on the last episode but Shamrock Rovers do indeed complete their second consecutive double um, in front of 11,500 fans at Daily Mount, they see off Waterbridge United 2 0. They just blow Alfie Hale's team off the pitch, really. Um, goals from Kevin Brady and a Noel Sinnott own goal in the first 15 minutes. It's not really a competitive game after that. So, Jim McLaughlin's record in the Republic since 1975, the Rovers manager, he's won six leagues and five FAI Cups. But by his own account, he's still haunted by losing the 1984 final to UCD. So very high standards there. But within a couple of weeks, McLaughlin will be gone. He's off back to his hometown of Derry as general manager, supposedly, with Noel King staying on as manager. That might sound like a bit of a lateral move, but Derry was a huge draw, particularly for a a native of the city. Uh, they'd just come into the league this season and they had average attendances of 8,000, which was higher than most football league clubs in England at this time, even in Division 2. So, you know, there was something really exciting exciting happening there and you can see why Jim McLaughlin wanted to be a part of it. But he was turning his back on really the most successful period, um, certainly in the modern
2: history of Shamrock Rovers. Well, the fact that they won so much in such a short period of time is incredible. But um, the that Waterford United side was really a really a common side at that time under um, under Alfie Hale and uh, yeah, I think it was impressive that they were able to keep up such a standard against the uh, teams of that ilk and and the likes of Galway and and Cork City who were quite strong at the time too. It was a it was quite a competitive league. But uh, I think as as we touched upon uh, last time out, it was getting a little bit boring for even some Shamrock Rovers.
0: So that put a cap on the League of Ireland season but something that was still very much ongoing that we flagged in the last episode was the World Snooker Championship at the Crucible. Um, Ireland's champion Dennis Taylor had been knocked out early. In fact the, the World Snooker Championship was closely followed on its heels by the European Cup Final and both of these would see two lads from sort of the eastern half of London going down to shock defeats because Joe Johnson beats Steve Davis 18-12 at the Crucible um, in the final of the World Snooker Championship. Joe Johnson, the 150-1 outsider.
1: The crowd here at the Crucible are going mad for Bradford's Joe Johnson.
2: (laughs) The most remarkable world final I've ever seen. And Joe Johnson defeats Steve Davis 18 frames to 12, as the capacity crowd go completely mad.
0: This will prove to be Johnson's only ranking tournament win. And Eamon Dunphy is delighted. He says, in the disenchanting year of 1986, a good guy, a decent guy had won. Thank God for sport. Eamon Dunphy really took himself too seriously in print, I think. He he wasn't quite as entertaining as, as on the TV.
1: Steve Davis seems grand as well booked some kraut rock bands to play in the UK for the first time Uh, seems like a good head, so even if he had won that one Eamon, it would have been fine, the universe would have been (laughs) alright
2: I think in the era of Hurricane Higgins and uh, Dennis Taylor with his upside down glasses maybe the the fact that Steve Davis took more than 8 seconds to to mop up the table probably uh, was held against him
1: Uh, It was good to see Joe Johnson get that win All right. I I think Davis was kind of the harbinger of
0: of a much more methodical, robotic... Studious approach. Yeah. You might ask why we're kind of going so big on, on snooker here. It was the biggest televised sport in the UK at this time, um, more so than football. There have been, I think, hundreds of hours of the World Championship have, be, have been broadcast. These people were huge celebrities, and it's just a fascinating time
1: for snooker. Barry Hearn is about to take some of them out to for a tour of China and, and, and Asia in general to try and promote the game over there, um, which obviously as we know now, had had strong results. And Joe Johnson was about to get on that tour just because of his victory as well. He was pretty pleased about that. And presumably
2: he wasn't taking it to Iceland, uh, given the, the lack of a uh, full-strength beer. <laughs> that would be an obstacle, all right. But then a couple
0: of days later in Seville, we have the European Cup final between Stáu Bucharest and FC Barcelona, managed by... None other than uh, El Tel, Terry Venables. Presumably, Catalonia doesn't have a name and Dunphy equivalent to stop him getting the job, as he did with the Republic of Ireland job many years later. Um, That's one of my favourite Dunphy clips. We might splice in a bit of it here. Now, he's still doing it. Are you telling me that he was assistant manager of his own country and he was still prepared to embarrass them? That he's going to come here, to Little Paddyland... Not going to but it's a pretty sterile final. It goes to penalties.
2: Mm-hmm. If they get to the penalties, you know they'll be they'll be good at penalties. Will the Romanians? Well, of course Barcelona know all about uh, those penalties. That's where they got there in the, in the semi-final. One or two tired legs, and there's Terry Venables there, David. You know you know him well. I mean,
0: what... no one seems to want to win it. Uh, the first four penalties are all missed, and then Lakatouche, who Ireland fans will get to know later, he he nearly blasts the net off. And um, Ballint rolls one in. And the Steaua Bucharest goalkeeper Helmut Dukadam, who is a Schwabian German ethnically, uh, he saves all four Barcelona penalties. Two of them are outstanding saves, and uh, yeah, Steaua Bucharest against all odds win the European Cup.
1: Hi, Dukadam! Ah, para Dukadam!
2: To the Cupa! Cupa Campionilor. And it's one of those things that we probably uh, we touched upon in, uh, in advance of the, the Uruguay game in terms of an awful lot of the players would have been domestically based or uh, based not too far from home. Uh, this very much would have been a Stowa team from uh, behind the Iron Curtain as it was and uh, would be very much the the nucleus of the, the Romania team at the time who were you know, uh, unusually strong for that country.
0: Absolutely, but... Unfortunately, one player who won't play a role in that rise of Romanian football is Helmut Dugadam, because this turns out to be his last game of professional football, even though he was a relatively young man. Um, there was all kinds of rumours around what had happened to him, but it was pretty straightforward. It turned out he'd, he'd suffered a... What seemed like a fairly innocuous fall that summer but he developed a blood clot which led to a blood disorder and he was never able to play again he he for a period lost all lost all um, sensation in one of his arms so this was actually his last game of football Um one of the disappointed men on the Barcelona team was uh, Steve Archibald long before he makes a, <laughs> a very brief appearance in the League of Ireland for home farm Everton he lasts 45 minutes and then gets a taxi straight to the airport um, and has never seen again. Um, Hang on, was this
2: home Emma or was it the cup final? <laughs> no, this was uh, this was one of Dermot
0: Keeley's less inspired master strokes many years later. Just a couple of days after this, we have the first ever all-Merseyside final of the FA Cup at Wembley. Um, Liverpool take on Everton, looking to clinch the double, having just pissed Pip... Having just pissed... <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> Liverpool take on Everton looking to clinch the double having just pipped them to the league title a few days earlier and Liverpool start the game with just one English player in the eleven, um, and that, even that's Craig Johnson who actually was born in South Africa and grew up in Australia but was in England under 21 international there's four Irish players on the field in the cup final and um, Beglin, Lawrence and Whelan and Sheedy. No Neville Southall of course who, who broke his ankle at Lansdowne Road.
1: Pat Jennings was drafted into the Everton squad um, to cover for, for Southall but didn't actually start the game and he, and he said after the game that he was happy that he didn't have to play it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe they missed a trick not playing Jennings just before he goes to the World Cup at Northern Ireland.
2: ...off through the centre again. This is promising. Lineker for Everton. Saved by Robola. Linica, 1-0 to Everton panel. Here's Whelan, Morby, and here's Rush, onside, Ian Rush, goal. Here's Rush, Douglas is up, so is Morby here. Douglas, no Johnston, yes! 2-1 to Liverpool. Yeah. And, Delglish, and Rush is on the far side, is this three? It is!
0: their first and subsequently we know their only double at least to date
1: and it was the first double won by a team with a player manager it was Doug Dioglisius uh, first year as player manager and he started that cup final as well one thing you might have missed Terlock, there was um, in yeah. the world champion uh, women's uh, 10 pin bowling at that time was Marjorie McEntee from Dublin um, and there's an illustration in one of the clippings uh, of her she had won the 1985 uh, World Cup uh, she had kind of come out of nowhere, bet her British neighbor in the final, and it uh, was her only moment on the international stage and was was never seen again after after winning that bowling title in seoul in one thousand nine hundred
0: and eighty five so hello a story I want to see a Netflix series about that
1: She's described on the website uh, of the bowling Association or i don 't know the international Bowl, bowling association we 'll call them as tall red haired Marjorie McEntee, a barmaid from Dublin. I suppose she, she gained their prowess for, for bowling from uh, ejecting some of the, the more considered gentlemen
2: from the pub.
0: Okay, this is not Nam, this is bowling, there are rules. Hey. All right, so just to zoom out from the world of sport for a moment, uh, TV has picked up a bit. We were, we were slagging it off on the previous episode. It's a couple of decent evenings viewing across the channel on the British channels if you're lucky enough to have them. But this week in Ireland sees the debut of the well, one of the defining series of the eighties, the Bruce Willis Sybil Shepherd postmodern comedy, fantasy, drama detective series Moonlighting.
2: We'll walk by night. We'll find day
1: just met on the
0: no indication as yet to the popularity it's going to enjoy. In fact, in one of the listings, uh, Bruce Willis is, is named as Bruce Wallace, uh, so he wasn't quite the star he would become. It all centred around this will-they-won't-they they relationship between Willis and Shepherd that I guess would be echoed in, in the X-Files in the following decade. Uh, it was kind of an indication that TV drama or comedy had really nowhere left to turn except back on itself because it was all about deconstructing the tropes of of detective series and so forth but it was a genuine tv event at the time i swear to you i didn't kill that man
1: i believe you is this kid a great audience or what
0: one thing that's interesting to look at is the vhs chance because this is really coming into the golden age of of video rental and um, long before there was netflix or on-demand tv of any kind your evenings entertainment maybe one or two evenings a week was what 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 looked like the least worst option on on the shelves in in uh, extravision or equivalent video store and um, it's really interesting to look at what was what the most popular rentals in ireland were at, at this time because none of them have with one exception have really survived in the in the cultural memory and um, Far and away the most rented video in Ireland this week was a film called Plenty about a British woman who fought in the French Resistance. Um, It's got the most random cast of any film I think I've ever come across. I'm not familiar with the film at all, but the cast included Meryl Streep, Charles Dance, Tracy Ullman, John Gilbert, Sting, Ian McKellen and Sam Neill as Lazar. And Bert Kwok. Which I think, like even compared to some of the teams Charlton has put out in the first two friendlies, that's that's a pretty jarring assembling of assemblage of talent <laughs> here uh, for what looks like a very worthy but also very boring film. Another film on the list was Porky's Revenge, which is reputed to be the worst of the Porky sequel sequels. So if you were curling up for that with. A Chinese and a snowy VHS. I hope your I hope your life turned out better than it was looking <laughs> at that stage. Invasion USA, a Chuck Norris movie, was on there as well. One of many films in which Americans fantasized about being invaded, while invading everyone else in in real life. If you were heading to the cinema, there was there were some surprisingly racy options in Galway. Um, at the Claddagh Palace, you could have seen Confessions of a Sexy Super Vixen, which. I think if you were turning up with kind of lascivious intent you might have been a bit disappointed by because it was actually a a Russ Meyer film from 1968 uh, better known as Good Morning and Good Night Um, Russ Meyer's stuff was kind of strictly softcore melodrama one of his films uh, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill is really good really strange but really enjoyable film you should check out but yeah that was the option for the more more adventurous palate in Galway at the time. The big occasion, the big event in Ireland um, on the in mid-May, it took place on the 17th, was Self-Aid. Uh, I guess taking its name from Live Aid, but kind of aimed at addressing, or at least... Well, we might talk about what exactly it was aimed at doing, but um, it was... Live
1: Aid was the summer before, is that right?
0: It was, yeah, it was 85. So Self-Aid was... was Kind of based around the unemployment uh, crisis in Ireland this time, and the lineup included the Boomtown Rats, Christa Berg, who you, you would not believe how big Christa Berg was at this time um, amongst Main Street. Like it wasn't, he wasn't a, a guilty pleasure. You know, you weren't being ironic if you said you liked Christa Berg. He was, he was genuinely a massive recording artist. Um, He's got a tune in the
1: in the Herald Hit List, all right. Fire on the Water. Yeah, never heard of it. And uh, not going to check it out either.
0: <laughs> There's The Chieftains, Clanad, De Danon, Elvis Costello, Rory Gallagher, Ntua Nua, Christy Moore, Van Morrison, The Pogues, Thin Lizzy, um, the headline act, you too, but also, as you can't keep them down, Stockton's Wing. <laughs> um, hey, <laughs> uh, I
1: was going to say that's a hell of a lineup, but yeah. Yeah. tarnished.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I mean that's got to be kind of the the kind of the most high powered lineup of of any kind of festival stage in Ireland ever, surely.
2: Wouldn't be far off. Um, I- I don't know if i should break the fourth wall but uh uh into a newest drummer Paul byrne is the father of shelburne captain uh Luke Byrne in twenty
0: twenty two i
2: didn't know that would you have been rushing out to to this one the r d s well if if stockton's wings are playing you know i'm i'm there um, <laughs> pro- it would it it wouldn't be probably my preferred uh headliners i' am not uh, I'm not a believer in the cult of the Boontown rats by any by any stretch but um I think an event like that certainly um you know it, it it's got to be up there with what was happening in Ireland at the time
1: I'd be I'd be hoping Rory Gallagher and Tin Lizzie were on the the second stage or something and we we the three of us could hang out at that one and be cool like <laughs> mm-hmm.
0: I I think I probably would have gone see Rory Gallagher cuz I I, I obviously because he died in I think 95 so I never saw him live, but apparently an incredible live musician.
2: The good news, the jobs total is now over a thousand, even better news, the money total is almost at 200,000, and the best news of all, Rory Gallagher, Woo! it's certainly a deeper lineup than maybe the uh, the infamous Dailyman Park uh, Bob Marley gig. Maybe there's more for the for the afternoon crowd there.
0: Well, given that this was at the RDS, um Leinster Rugby might might put like Bob Geldof on a on a shirt <laughs> for their next <laughs> European campaign. Oh god. It's a great lineup, but I think this whole event is kind of typical of the politics of the time. It was all around we want to shift away from what they would have considered handouts to people starting their own businesses and that's what the money would, would go towards. It was real kind of prime neoliberal stuff and some of the stuff in the in the papers around it was hair-raising, like talking about the culture of entitlement and all this nonsense around welfare recipients. So, it, like, I'm sure it was a good impulse, it's a great line-up, but I think a bit ill-conceived politically. We should probably get back to the football, should we? We'll get back to that in a moment. <laughs> Just to note as well, though, uh, the kind of big news story, Rusper House has been robbed of some of the world's finest, or one of the world's finest art collections for the second time, second of four times that this will happen. Uh, I think the general is the perpetrator on this occasion. People literally used to just rob Rusper House. A lot of the stuff you'd see in the bite wing now of the the National Gallery, uh, they used to just rob it as kind of collateral if they needed to get someone out of prison or they needed to negotiate a... A, 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 a leaner sentence They would rob Rusborough House and hold the paintings hostage and then give them back.
2: Reading the news coverage, it kind of seems like, you know, uh, when you go into like a posh cafe and have that uh, bring a book, leave a book.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it was that equivalent, but for for the IRA and the gangland criminals
1: of the time. Yeah, 12 years previous it had been done by the IRA, Rose Dugdale involved.
2: The first theft at Rusborough House in 1974, when £9 million worth of paintings were taken, was described as the world's biggest art robbery. The 17 stolen today were said to be worth
1: at least 10 million.
0: So the Rusper Heist, one of the great four-in-a-rows of this period, along with, with Rovers packed by League championships, <laughs> we'll plough on grimly through the, the perpetual daylight of Reykjavik at the end of May for this somewhat inauspicious tournament. And the first talking point, really... Is that Paddy Bonner is in goal because he's he's had a good run into the season with Celtic. I think he's had six consecutive clean sheets, but he's by no means kind of the the people's favourite or or certainly the media favourite. And um, I think a lot of people think uh, would have questions about his, his abilities at, at this level.
1: Yeah, didn't cover himself in in, in glory for that Uruguay goal, um, but yeah, we don't need to dwell on that. Mm-hmm.
0: And then we have a back four. Of John Anderson stepping to right-back, he'd played previously at centre-half for Jack, Chris Hewton at left-back, and then Kevin Moran and Mick McCarthy.
1: Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, I think Jack wanted to probably see Moran and and but uh, McCarthy is just all pervasive at the, uh, at this moment in time, Mick McCarthy, and he's got himself into the squad and seems to be a, a dedicated soldier for, for Jack.
0: In the middle of midfield, as we said, we have Paul McGrath and making his debut, McKennedy.
2: If you saw Giovanni Trapattoni go away to Iceland and and play two defensive midfielders, you might you might be wondering a little bit. So
1: yeah, a team with a few amateur players in there. Um, there's four students, an Adidas sales manager, and a and a policeman in in that uh, Iceland team that we're coming up against. So maybe throw in and I'll see. Yeah. I can I
2: can almost see the Sky Sports graphic with all all of their jobs: bin man and gas fitter. Gas
1: fitter, of course. Yeah Yeah.
2: yeah. <laughs>
0: Well, actually, the the, the Icelanders—I'm going to we'll talk about their team in a second—but they seem to be a bit more elevated than gas. Iceland just comes across like, like a town in a cartoon or something, where everyone has has sort of multiple roles because there's only so many characters they wanted to draw. Quite a few of their players are are have legal backgrounds and are some are pra- at least one's a practicing lawyer. A bit different from the from the gas fitters and and carpet fitters <laughs> of of Irish football of this time. Um, but anyway, yeah, the, the the wide players in the Irish lineup are Houghton and Galvin, both pretty pretty attacking. Galvin an out and a winger, I would say. Um, Houghton not so much, but certainly a, a very attacking wide player. And up top, making his fiftieth appearance for the national team, captain on the day, is Frank Stapleton, um, paired with John Aldridge. So as you were saying last time, Dave, this kind of it's, it's really intriguing pairing to see how they they kind of bounce off one another.
2: Yeah, I think it's a it, it's a combination that that Jack uh, before that Wales game uh, when he came into the job he 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 sort of said that that's really what he wants to look at. I think Stapleton uh, still at the, you know still at this point um, maybe. Uh, uh, his Manchester United days were kind of winding down a little bit, but he was still very much Ireland's number one, number nine. And John Aldridge was the the younger player coming in, the the player with potential at at a a lower level club, I suppose. But a player that had a a little bit of success coming in as well. So it was an intriguing combination. I think uh, one that. Although there weren't an awful lot of eyes on the game I think uh, certainly from maybe a journalist's point of view the, the the small number went out to Iceland I think they would have been intrigued by the possibility
0: And and yeah, as you we were saying Iceland may be, may be not the most vaunted of opponents and, and a happy hunting ground for Ireland uh, in, in recent years In fact, Ireland's last competitive win had been in Iceland in Reykjavik 3-0 in September 1983 uh, but of that team only Stapleton, Moran and Hutton. Are lining out here. So as for Ireland's opponents, um, Iceland had been in a hellish qualifying group for the 1986 World Cup with Spain, Scotland and Wales but they were competitive. They actually beat Wales 1-0 at home and only lost 2-1 away. Um, They lost to a late goal at home to Scotland by Jim Bett who actually had a couple of spells in Iceland himself and married an Icelander and uh, both his sons played underage for Iceland so that was a bit of a betrayal on his part. Um, And they lost twice uh, 2-1 Spain after leading in both games so um, they were by no means a a write-off as an international team and their manager their new manager in fact was Ziggy Helt the former West German international and a Jacks opponent in the 1966 World Cup final but there was a real missed opportunity for banter here because when the job came up the final two candidates were Ziggy Helt and a certain Mr Owen Hand which would have been a hell of a reunion um, at this early stage. Um, Helt, incidentally, was not short of a few bob. He's a landlord with three hundred properties in Germany, which eye-watering now if he still has them to think how much how much they're worth. The Icelandic team, as we said, they they do have some big names for the time in it, and um, Sigurdur Jónsson. Uh, of Sheffield Wednesday, uh, he made his international debut at the age of sixteen, um, and he'll be he'll subsequently sign for Arsenal a few years down the line. Um, Ormslev of Fram uh, was previously in the Bundesliga with Fortuna Düsseldorf, and then up top is where the real strength really is in in, in the side. Um, they have Paterson of Hercules in in Spain, an ex Bayernord and Anderlecht striker. And I guess the real star, one of the the greats of Icelandic football, is Arnar Gudjonsson of Anderlecht, prolific striker in in some really decent European leagues. And of course, if we allow ourselves a little peek into the future, um, the father of Ider Gudjonsson.
1: And his grandson, Sven Aron, is playing in Sweden as well, another striker. So nice little legacy they have there of goal scorers.
0: Arnar and Ider's careers did actually overlap and... One of Arner's great ambitions was to play for Iceland alongside Eider. Um, but in fact, Eider made his debut replacing Arner against Estonia in a game many years later. Uh, and so that seems a bit cruel to me, but they never got the chance to be on the pitch together for the national team. So we're about to kick off in front of about 5,000 fans um, at the stadium with an unpronounceable name in, in Reykjavik.
1: Bright start from Ireland. Anderson and Houghton working well down the right hand side. After seven minutes, Anderson um, gets forward and, and gets a shot in from range, but it's well held by the Icelandic keeper, Sigurdsson. A few minutes later, a long, long ball from Morin, uh, heralding the future there, maybe. Headed down by McGrath, and uh, Galvin fires into the side netting um, from an acute angle on the left. 12 minutes in, it's coming thick and fast. Uh, Good Johnson runs on to Pedersen's flick on. Um, he goes round Bonner but uh, puts the shot wide. And Good Johnson has yet another chance just a few minutes later after 15 minutes. Um, but his volley is well held by Bonner. As the first half progresses, uh, Houghton is looking dangerous down the right. He pulls a cross back from the byline and uh, Aldridge dives but uh, narrowly wide with his header. And after 35 minutes, Houghton provides again uh, from a free kick, he whips it in actually, very dangerous, um, cross to the back post, McCarthy nodded it down and uh, McGroud a kind of a spinning left foot volley for his first goal for his country, Uh, nice tidy set piece lads.
2: Yeah, I suppose um, Harbinger of things to come as as we uh, as we mentioned earlier it's uh, very much a, a by the book um, we'll see it more and more it's described as a, a British style goal and I think it's very much that it's uh, not route one because it's a cross but it's very uh, very simple but very effective and a, a, you know a terrific finish for your first for your first international goal with Paul McGrath maybe a little bit vindicating that decision from, from Jack Charlton not to not to just play him at the back end To give him more of a, a role where he can play a bit of football
1: Yeah so Ireland's tails are up And a couple of minutes later have another chance Through Anderson, who's bombing forward from right back But he's just fires gnarly over But Iceland hit back on 40 minutes uh, Johnson crosses to the far post From the right hand byline And Bonner rises to catch it And under no pressure Kind of seems to drop it Just yeah drop it over the line um, And that's an own goal I suppose created by Good Johnson, but um, an absolute dog's dinner made of it by Paddy Bonner there.
2: And we've already we've already established ourselves as um, as Bonner's biggest critics in the in the early days of of the Charlton era. And I think uh, on that occasion we've been we've been vindicated somewhat. And I think uh, a few more people might uh, might agree with us at the time.
0: But as you say, John, that's the the, the last action of the first half, um, or the last significant action. So. Deeply disappointing in a a game which Ireland have have thoroughly dominated um, that really a a needless goalkeeping error is sending the middle level.
2: I certainly think what's a a common feature between the Uruguay game, particularly the the second half of the Uruguay game and um, uh, the Iceland game to date, is apart from apart from a couple of half chances there for iceland before before the goal it's very much all ireland it's maybe not attacking in waves after wave but the the key moments are more or less dominated by ireland at the time and it's it, it's i think it's indicative of a of Charlton's approach it's keep it very tight and uh, you know stop the other team playing and when you do get a chance you you really take it and and over those two games it does seem like ireland have a a fairly a fairly decent con- conversion rate and a fairly decent rate of, uh, of actually creating half chances and, and decent chances um, so there is a half time substitution uh, Chris Houghton's picked up an ankle injury so Pat Byrne who uh, seems to uh, not be hugely meant in favour but he, he seems to come in for, for the, odd, uh, the, the odd appearance uh, early in the Charlton area, he goes into right back with Anderson moving across to the left certainly he, he he seems to start the second half well again a, a long ball forwards knocked down by Stapleton Ray Houghton swivels the fire and he puts it just wide from a, from a, a a tight angle uh, shortly afterwards um, Joe Worrell, the, the referee that we uh, that we maybe don't have a great a great history with misses a good penalty show for an Icelandic uh, handball uh, Ireland now all over Iceland um, Shortly after that, Galvin finds Stapleton who makes space and lashes the left foot shot off the crossbar from more or less 30 yards. Ireland are very dominant Defence is under no pressure at this point. Final 20 minutes, McGrath tries a shot from distance and pulls up what looks like a hamstring injury and he's replaced by Jerry Daly for his 46th cap, far away from that um, from that elusive uh, testimonial. and With 15 minutes remaining, Ireland regained the lead. Kennedy's Corner is headed away, met by uh, Jerry Daly on the volley, twenty five yards out. His shot is blocked, but he re- re- reacts instantly to, sh- to sh- put the rebound into the goal through Sigurdsson, right into the middle.
1: Uh, what do we think about that? let Through Sigurdsson is is right. It's like very bad goalkeeping for that rebound volley uh, from Jerry Daly. So we're not, it's not just Honor we're going in on here. It's uh, I think it's goalkeeping standards in general. I
2: think Jerry Payton might just be looking on and saying, "What are these agents at?"
0: Ireland certainly aren't complaining, and nor is Jerry Daly. I think this is I think his thirteenth international goal, which, as we said last time, is a hell of a record for a midfield player or for any player, frankly in in the Republic of Ireland colours.
2: And coming towards the end of the game, second sub or the first sub for Iceland, Goodney Bergson comes on for August Mari Jonsson, and um, he will go on to be the president of the Icelandic FA. Um, six minutes in time, Niall Quinn, third sub, is not, comes on for John Aldridge. He comes on for his debut, having a uh, having not been sure if he was even in the squad in the first place. Uh, Quinn has a chance for a debut goal. is three minutes later, as the king's uh, the keeper is off his line, this time uh, Sigurdsson gets lucky as the lob goes over the bar. Uh, game over, Ireland win 2-1, and it's the first victory outside of Ireland since 1984 when Ireland beat China in Japan.
0: But yeah, after the game, while it's a great result, a rare win away from home for Ireland, um, things are looking a bit ominous for Paddy Bonner because Jack says it was a stupid goal to give away for an international class goalkeeper.
1: But yeah, then uh, he says then that, that uh, Bonner will start the next game against the, Czech, against the Czechs, but then um, he goes back on that and <laughs> doesn't decide to start Packy Bonner.
2: I think he was always going to give Peyton uh, at least half a game anyway, so maybe it just worked out that way anyway, but certainly he wasn't pleased by uh, Well, I think we can, we can call safely at this stage a, a trademark Bonner howler. There's a
0: pretty muted reaction back home to this result. As we said, the focus is really elsewhere. Uh, in one of the papers there's as many column inches given to what the paper itself describes as a boring uh, steiger William Sheeran Cup final <laughs> between Clonus Town and Selbridgetown, in Tolka Park, uh, which finishes one 0 after extra time. Uh, so not the highest profile game, but people are beginning to become aware that you know there is potentially a, a trophy on the line here. Um, Ireland's next game is against Czechoslovakia if they win that, they win the tournament, um, which will be absolutely unprecedented in the history of Irish football. And as we said, uh, Bonner is the highest-profile casualty, and you know that could be that could be fatal, that could be permanent. Because Jerry Payton is back in the team for the Czech Slovakia game. The rest of the team, Pat Byrne, incredibly, is retained at right back. Uh, A position I don't think he'd ever played before. The central defensive pairing of Moran Moran and McCarthy stays as it it is with John Anderson left back. And then Mickey Robinson comes in on the right side of midfield. uh, A veteran striker um, with Paul McGrath and Ray Houghton on this occasion in the middle. Um now some of this is dictated by injuries. There was a, a fear that McGrath would miss out. He's actually alright, but but Chris Houghton's ankle is gone, so he he's he won't be featuring. Um Tony Galvin plays wide left. And up top, um there's a debut, a full debut for Niall Quinn, alongside John Aldridge. Um, there's not a huge amount of optimism around this game. Uh, in the Herald, an old Dunn says that. The Czechs will be too strong, or the Czech-Slovaks will be too strong for Ireland. Czech-Slovakia have been in a really tough group for 1986 World Cup qualifying with West Germany, Portugal, Sweden and Malta. They finished fourth, but just two points off qualifying. It was really two terrible results in a couple of days that that scuppered them. They they had a disastrous draw in Malta and then lost 5-1 to West Germany in the space of about 10 days, um, which was decisive in keeping them out. Their manager is Josef Masopust, who was a, a, a star of their legendary 1962 team um, when they were beaten finalists in, in the World Cup final. And as for their, their starting 11, um Stanislav Levy plays for Bohemians. Not not the Irish Bohemians, but the Czech Bohemians. So there is a bit of a Bulls-Rovers <laughs> clash coming on here with him and, and Pat Byrne. <laughs> yeah, other players of note, or at least one other player of note um, in the... Czechoslovak side is Lubos Kubik who had a good career around Europe but he was destined to become Turkey's second worst manager after Basil Fawlty because he got them relegated out of the league for the first time in 79 years I think um, but that's all ahead of him as this game kicks off. Ireland kick off the game with a front two of Niall Quinn and Holm Fedor Karlsdottir who is the 1985 Miss World. Uh, and she's invited to ceremonially kick off the game with what? With Niall Quinn, yeah, yeah. She's known as Huffy, which is is not a very Miss World name. Um, sounds more like like a Bavarian peasant or something.
2: Can't believe Jack dropped Frank Staple from fair. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, he actually dropped John Aldridge,
1: but... Uh, Was that like just a ceremonial tip-off and then and then she runs off and we have another tip-off kind of job?
0: I presume so. She did actually, like, literally kick the game off with, with
2: Niall Quinn. It's just some come down for Frank after being captain in the first game and then dropped for
1: <laughs> a model who's
2: not even eligible.
1: He's actually replaced by a remote control car in the, next year as well. <laughs> um,
0: well, she and Jack are the only world champions at the game, so I guess... Uh, I guess he felt a certain kingship there. The game kicks off with Czechoslovakia looking pretty sluggish. Um, Ireland are going very long, as we've seen. Czechoslovaks playing slow, intricate passes, and Ireland really getting amongst them and, and causing them serious problems. Um, I'm I'm just kind of amazed at the intensity that's described of this performance, given the length of the season. Like, given that some players have been basically living on planes for a month. And given the you know the physical nature of football at this time, so Jack certainly seems to have rallied the team into some kind of shape they're they're playing for him
1: Mick McCarthy leading on the pitch as well as he's captaining uh, in, because Stapleton's on the bench quite a turnaround for a man that wasn 't in the first two squads
0: but yeah the the real the first chance of the game actually goes to the back it's a good save from Jerry Payton. He tips a shot wide by from Siva um and twelve minutes in we see a repeat of that free kick routine. Houghton fires one across, and uh, Mick McCarthy comes steaming in from deep. He flashes it across the goal, but John Aldridge somehow heads it straight at Ludek McClosco, who towers over Noel Quinn even from about two yards out. So, yeah, it just doesn't seem to be clicking for Aldridge with with international football, and and it's baffling because he scored, I think, well over thirty goals in in the in the. The league season just finished.
2: Maybe still rattled from being dropped for the kick-off.
0: <laughs> yeah, I hope he would have put that one away for sure. Um, even with her tiara on. <laughs> um, but just a minute later, um, a Houghton free kick finds Aldridge free on the right. Uh, he, this time, puts over a decent cross. And again, the header, this time for McGrath, is straight at McCloskey. Um McGrath has another chance after 20 minutes. He shakes off some pressure. Uh, but fires in a shot which is well saved. And then McGrath has a third chance in the space of about 10 minutes. Houghton and Anderson link up really well to put him in, but um, his fierce shot is very well saved again. Then five minutes before half time, another unusual set-piece taker, uh, Kevin Moran takes one, presumably from deep. Um, It puts Niall Quinn clear of the offside trap on the left, and he pulls the ball down nicely, but blasts it just wide of the far post and that's it for the first half um, Ireland's high tempo approach for the patchwork team is causing Czechoslovakia some, some serious problems Moran um, and McCarthy looking very solid at, at the at the back and yeah we could be 45 minutes away from silverware here
1: Ludek McClosco as well four years before he joins West Ham bit of a Premier League legend really isn't he
0: yeah very familiar figure to Premier League watchers of a certain age so at half time we have a we have a, a significant change as as Mick Kennedy comes on for Anderson. Uh, and again, we have now really two out-of-position fullbacks. We have uh, Pat Byrne on the right and Mick Kennedy, who's a, a midfield player, albeit a left-footed one, coming in to play at left-back. Robinson goes into central midfield and Houghton goes uh, into his more natural position wide on the right. Uh, but that doesn't satisfy Jack because just 10 minutes into the second half, he makes uh, another Substitution and Frank Stapleton is at last on for his 51st cap and um, replacing Niall Quinn. And an hour into the game, we have one of the most decisive incidents of it. Uh, McGrath and McCarthy are kind of harrying the Czech Slovaks in their own half, again, a, a trademark of Jack's era. They hustle the ball back, and McGrath's crossed hits Straka on the arm. It looks like a pretty harsh award um, to a lot of a lot of uh, reporters and onlookers at the game, of which there were probably only a thousand. It was it was a very sparsely attended match. Um, but the penalty is given, and this is the opportunity for John Aldridge really to write himself into the into the history books. It's it's a chance to score the goal that might well clinch Ireland's first ever piece of silverware. And um, noted penalty taker, noted penalty scorer, this time. Not so much. His pretty weak penalty is well saved by McClosco and the chance is gone. He just can't seem to, to buy a goal at this level. Is this entirely psychological,
2: do we think?
1: It does feel like that at this point, doesn't it? Somebody who's been scoring all season that's just, yeah, can't break his duck for, for international. Perhaps the
2: step-up in levels... Um... <laughs> maybe not so much now but certainly um, I know he's played in cup finals and that but the the step up to international level at that point might just be a, a little bit daunting
0: there's at this point there's a really notorious incident where Mick Kennedy on just his second appearance for the national team he goes in incredibly hard and incredibly high I mean high is, is putting it mildly because his elbow is actually what's involved um, he smashes Levy across the face uh, he I think possibly breaks his nose. Certainly, blood spurting everywhere. Um, Levy is literally spitting teeth out on the pitch. Uh, incredibly, he's not booked or sent off for it. But it's yeah, it causes serious bad blood between the teams, uh, which continues really after the game. Um, he has a reputation as this very very competitive, boring on, bordering on psychotic. <laughs> Competitor in the middle of the field but this really seems to have crossed the line and then after 75 minutes there's another outing for the latest weapon in in Ireland's footballing arsenal that's Mick McCarthy's long throw-ins he hurls one in from deep Frank Stapleton gets a good flick on it and the ball falls to getting forward yet again Paul McGrath he turns flashes a shot in and it just clears the crossbar so with less than a quarter of an hour to play. If there's no scoring in this game, it's going to be a, a long wait for Ireland uh, for the result of the Iceland-Czechoslovakia game to determine who has actually won the tournament. But that may not yet be necessary because with fewer than 10 minutes to play, there's some really typical Jack Charlton-era pressing in the Czechoslovak half of the field. Tony Galvin and Paul McGrath, Hassel Kubik, out of possession and the ball falls to Frank Stapleton 25 yards out he drives forward a couple of paces and then unleashes an arrow of a shot straight into the top corner his 15th goal for his country as the minutes tick away if the scores stay like this Republic of Ireland will have won the Reykjavik 200 trophy and so the whistle is blown on An historic moment, the very first time that a Republic of Ireland team has won an international tournament. There may have been a thousand people in the stands, there may have been absolutely no one outside of um, a certain segment of the Irish footballing uh, public interested in the outcome. But you can't argue with silverware and um, in just his fourth game in charge, Jack Charlton has secured it. And not only that, it's Ireland's first back-to-back win since 1980. And their first back-to-back wins away from Ireland since 1972. So what do we think, guys? Are we popping the champagne?
2: Well, it's a, I'd have a, a little bit of sympathy for Owen Hand, who uh, fought so hard for his job and then sees, sees his replacement walk in within four games become our most uh, successful manager of all time.
1: The champagne was popped with uh seven fans who who travelled at it. It a cost of six hundred pound a head. Uh, that night they were nicknamed the seven Irish geezers. So uh, they had a good old night. Six hundred pounds would have got you into
2: how many back to back shows of Rocky Four and Back to the Future. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all that said, and all jokes aside, I mean there is an art to winning, I think. And if you got whether it's the World Cup or a three team tournament, Irish teams Aren't used to you know going there with that objective in mind and coming out with with silverware psychologically even this is a really significant milestone for Jack.
2: Well, I suppose on, in terms of coming away with silverware, I think the the immediate concern was um, that the they wouldn't come away with silverware because the tournament wasn't over and they were scheduled to leave before before the final game.
1: I think they got their medals that night though they were rushed rushed to them Jack and Captain Mick McCarty, on the day. Uh, Captain Mick McCarthy gave their medals to legends Charlie O'Leary and, and Mick Byrne. The team are
0: presented with the trophy, the Reykjavik City Cup, as it's known. And we believe, because we've been in touch with the FAI, that that trophy is still tucked away somewhere in Abbottstown. So maybe it will get another outing uh, once the COVID post-COVID renovations have been finished in FAI HQ. While while we're we're very much still rooted here in nineteen eighty six, um, one of the things we do want to do is is make note of when players kinda of leave the scene. Um and we can let you know this the this game was the final cap um for Michael Robinson, Mick Kennedy, and indeed Pat Byrne. Um Michael Robinson and Mick Kennedy actually no longer with us, and um, both of them passed away relatively recently um within the past 18 months two years um, mckendy in fact although he never played for ireland again he did kind of heavily reconnect with his irish roots and in fact he, he'd been living in, in county clare for some years when when he died um michael robinson obviously would go on to become quite a famous uh tv presenter and personality in spain before his his untimely death um I think just just in the in the early days of the COVID pandemic, um, I think he died of cancer. So yeah, two players uh, with I guess very different lengths of their careers, but both worth commemorating. Um, we should say about Mick Kennedy as well. It has been suggested that the reason Mick Kennedy never played for Ireland again was because of what he did in this game. Um, that you know that, that, that very violent incident with with Levy and um, that Jack Charlton felt it had crossed the line. That Jack, you know, Jack was a a fierce competitor, but not too impressed by outright thuggery of this type. Um, in subsequent years, Jack will say that's half the story. He just he felt he had better options, but um, that he he hadn't been impressed by that incident, and uh, yeah, that was part of the reason that that Kendi was never selected again. Did that surprise you guys that Jack t- taking that approach.
2: No, it it I guess it comes back to um what we spoke about uh with regard to maybe george best at the top of the discussion beneath everything else and maybe his own uh lack of belief in his own talents he was uh above all i think he he had quite a, a streak of moralism in him and I, I do think something like that would uh would go against his own uh, his own view of of sportsmanship and uh, the way things should be done
0: yeah and, and also again just to give it just to cheat a little and give an insight into the future um this is Pat Byrne's uh, last game for Ireland and Liam Toohey's prediction will come true. In fact, after this day, which bear in mind was May 1986, no League of Ireland player will represent the national team again until Glenn Crow in 2002, uh, which is, I think, really, really sad and it's not a great reflection on, on Jack Charlton. It's not a great reflection on many aspects of Irish football.
1: To give us a bit of positivity though at the end of that to bring us back to 86 uh, Stapleton reflected on the on the tournament as a fabulous few days and it gave him and uh, some of the other touring players an opportunity to catch up on their sleep and get over their jet lag as well as winning a tournament in Iceland he said that at times when we were not training or playing it was a bit boring
0: He's a simple soul Frank Stapleton <laughs> <laughs> um, Right so we're not doing too badly for ourselves we're, we're three episodes in and we've already won the tournament so I presume it's it's just going to be a silverware packed extravaganza from here on out so stay tuned for that over the coming years. Ireland's next game will be against Liverpool at Flower Lodge in Cork, deferred from those Cork 800 celebrations we mentioned actually. That game won't take place until August. In the meantime of course there will be an entire world cup in Mexico Uh, So obviously the Republic aren't going, Jack Chardon is going and RT are covering every single game live. So what we thought we'd do is bring you a special episode on how the tournament was received um, in a country that was just beginning to hold out hopes for its national team once again and tentatively. So my thanks once again to John Breslin. Yeah, cheers. And of course to Dave Donnelly. Thanks very much. Now, we're going to play you out with a song which wasn't yet in the charts, but would be very shortly uh, and was very heavily anticipated in Irish music circles. And this is, this is by Aslan. That was really Alan
2: Partridge. but I'm going to leave it in. I was sure you were going to say, this is, this is Stockton's Swing." <laughs>
1: and up yours as as well.